Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. I am so glad that you could join us because I have the utmost respect and um, the utmost um, just adoration, really, for the guests that we have on today. Rob Bellot is someone that we had on the show about two years ago, and it was just about the time when a chemical, a family of chemicals called PFAS was beginning to make its way into the American lexicon. And I had him on the show to talk about a book that at that time was just coming out. It's called Exposure, Poisoned Water, Corporate Greed, and One Lawyer's 20-Year Battle Against DuPont. And for those of you who didn't get to hear that interview, Rob, I just want to give you a chance to talk to us just a little bit about the book. Um, I read it cover to cover more than once, and, and I think it's a really one of the most important books that people can read when it comes to environmental protection issues um, in 21st century America. So thanks for coming on the show and talk to us a little bit about your book. Well, thanks so much for having me back. I really appreciate it. Um, uh, yeah, the, the book Exposure really highlights the story of how we all found out about the existence of this completely man-made class of chemicals we now call forever chemicals, or also called PFAS, per and poly fluoroalkylated substances, quite a mouthful. But uh, the book really explores the, the more than 20-year history um, of what it took to uncover the fact that these chemicals, frankly, even existed, um, and to bring the information out about what was known about the toxicity of the chemicals, the fact that they were uh, getting out and getting into drinking water all over the world, into food, into plants, into the, the, the soil, the environment, and into virtually every living creature on the planet, and to how to bring that information out to get it to the scientific community, to the regulators, to the public, um, and what it took um, in one community along the Ohio River uh, to, to, to bring that information out, um, and really how complex our system in this country is for identifying and regulating toxic chemicals um, and how the system, frankly, really works, you know, what it takes to, to get the science published and out there about health effects of dangerous chemicals, what it takes to go through the legal system or through the regulatory system, and how all of those different processes um, interact together. Uh, to create really what we had an unprecedented situation here of massive worldwide contamination by man-made chemicals in the blood of virtually every creature on the planet that occurred uh, during our lifetimes, but went mm -hmm. essentially unnoticed and unrecognized. Uh, so really, that, that's the story laid out in the book and um, uh, you know, truly tried to do our best to, to collect in one place that history for folks. So as people learn that these chemicals are out there and getting into their water, getting into their, in, into them, uh, they've got a resource to understand how did this happen and hopefully how we might be able to fix things going forward. Well, and, and what's amazing is, you know, you are an attorney um, and a lot of this information is, of course, you know, about chemistry. So there's science involved. But the way that the book is presented is so accessible to the layperson. Um, and, and what's interesting, Rob, is that after I read your book and had you on the show, um, I was like, huh, I wonder about my water supply. So I Googled, I live in Pleasanton, California. Um, and so I Googled Pleasanton PFAS and realized six months before I interviewed you, our water agency staff had briefed our their board of directors that we did have a significant PFAS problem. And in fact, at that time, we were one of the most contaminated water supplies in the entire state of California. And I did not know that until after I read your book. So you changed my life. And I'm, I'm just so happy to have you back on because since we talked, so much has happened. And I want us to be able to catch up on, on all the things that are going on legally and in public policy. But before we do, I want to make sure that our listeners have a good grasp of 
what PFAS is, and most importantly, the human health impacts associated with PFAS exposure. So give us that overview, a layman's definition of PFAS, and talk to us about what PFAS can do to the human body. Sure. You know, this, this, this term PFAS, again, refers to an, it's an entire class of chemicals that all share a pretty basic common characteristic of having carbons attached to fluorine. And uh, as a lawyer, you know, I had to kind of really learn why was that significant and what did that mean? Basically, these chemicals with this carbon-fluorine bond, it's, a, it's the kind of a chemical bond that doesn't exist in nature. These are completely man-made chemicals. But in this particular bond, this particular chemical structure makes them incredibly strong and makes them useful in a wide variety of different manufacturing products, but also makes them incredibly difficult to ever break apart or break down. That's why you hear them referred to now as forever chemicals, because this, this unique chemical structure of carbons and fluorines uh, attached to each other make them almost impossible to break down in the natural environment. Uh, you hear them re being referred to as taking thousands or possibly millions of years to break yeah. down once they get out into the world. These are chemicals that we now know uh, uh, there's probably hundreds, if not thousands, that fit in this category. Uh, far fewer that are actually in you know pretty widespread use. The, the the ones we know the most about are the ones that have eight carbons called C8s, and two of those we know the most about. And the one I focus on in the book and that you may have seen in the film Dark Waters or the documentary The Devil We Know is a C8 called PFOA. Um, and the other mm -hmm. most common known one is PFOS. Uh, but again, these are chemicals, none of which existed on the planet prior to World War II. But over the last 70 years, they've been pumped out in massive quantities in a huge different variety of different products. Uh, and unfortunately, um, you know, I think you asked about the health effects. Unfortunately, what we've learned is um, this, this unique chemical structure also gives them some pretty disturbing abilities to impact um, our health. Uh, with PFOA, for example, the C8 that we know the most about, it's been linked to kidney cancer, testicular cancer, ulcerative colitis, thyroid disease, preeclampsia, and high cholesterol. That was through independent studies and science that were done uh, over many years. And since that time, We've learned in the science keeps, keeps coming out on these chemicals, unfortunately, showing additional potential adverse effects. And uh, what we're seeing is the potential for these effects to occur at lower and lower exposure levels. Some of the most troubling information that's coming out now is showing potential of these chemicals to impact or impair our immune system and maybe even possibly decrease the effectiveness of vaccines something that's incredibly concerning to public health officials and scientists all over the world, but, you know, particularly as we're all struggling with a global pandemic. Yes. Here we have chemicals, these man-made uh, chemicals coursing through drinking water all over the planet in the blood of almost everyone on the planet, and they may have these kinds of effects. So it, it's, it's really raised red flags among public health officials and scientists all over the world about the, the really uh, serious potential impact that these chemicals can have on our, on our health. I, I want you to help our listeners understand how they might become exposed to PFAS. And we're, we're going to talk about drinking water and, and firefighting foam in just a moment, but there are so many other ways that we might be exposed to PFAS. And I'd love for you to, to give us a rundown on, on where it's found and how we might ingest it. Sure. Um, you know, that when we first started finding out about these chemicals, uh, we learned about them through um, some, some cases that involved um, um, a Teflon manufacturing facility out in West Virginia um, and a Scotchgard uh, manufacturing operation up in, in Minnesota. So, the, you know, we, we know, for example, um, a lot about those, those processes. But these chemicals and the related chemicals in this PFOS family have been used in so many different consumer products over the last 70 years. Things like stain-resistant, waterproof clothing, carpeting, 
fast food wrappers and packaging, firefighting foams, cosmetics, um, you know, dental floss, computer chips, uh, you name it. And, and unfortunately, um, because these chemicals have had so many uses, they've been used in so many products uh, that our, our potential for exposure is huge, not only from, obviously, if it's in our drinking water, that's a, that's a huge potential source of exposure, but we could also be exposed through these various different consumer products, um, and when these materials then get released from not only manufacturing facilities, but it, when they end up in landfills. You know, a lot of these chemicals have not been regulated in this country, so they've ended up in unlined or non-hazardous landfills where they may be seeping out or leaking out into our groundwater, into our streams. Um, and unfortunately, they also can get up into the air, um, you know, from, from manufacturing operations or incineration and, and travel all over the planet. So unfortunately, mm-hmm. we can be exposed in a wide variety of ways. Um, and it's very difficult to really identify all those different places uh, because, again, these chemicals have been essentially unregulated for decades. Um, and a lot of the information about where these, pro- where these chemicals have been used hasn't necessarily been made available to the public. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. what, what products the chemicals are in has been kept confidential by companies or trade secrets. So you're not going to see them showing up on product ingredient lists or warning labels. So it's, it's, there's been widespread exposure, but most of us have had absolutely no idea that we've been exposed. And as you indicated, you know, there are cities and communities all over the world now that are just starting to realize that this stuff may, may have made its way now into their drinking water. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it's an evolving situation, unfortunately. Well, and I think that, you know, when we talk about the solutions, uh, there, there are several different avenues that, that need to occur, but certainly um, the legal system <laughs> is an important component in the, the ultimate solution to this situation. And I want to talk to you about some of the lawsuits and some of the legal cases that are going on. There's a, a California water agency that's recently sued 3M. Um, and some other companies over groundwater contamination. And I'd love for you to talk to us about some of the details of this particular lawsuit and why it's so significant. Uh, Yeah, as a lawyer, and first of all, you know, uh, I... As a lawyer, I just have to have to have my my legal disclaimer. Yeah, I'm here today just obviously talking about what I understand uh, based on the science and the facts and what's out there publicly um, available. We actually represent uh, a lot of public water providers, including many of the larger systems in California. And we represent a number of states through their attorney general's office in a lot of these cases that are pending right now. Uh, so, uh, but I can, t- I can talk to you in a general sense, you know, about what's happening here, that you've got um, communities, states, um, finding out that these chemicals have made their way into drinking water and are now facing huge costs uh, to have to deal with this, not only with the, the, the process of, of going out and sampling and trying to collect the information about what actually exists and what's the extent of the contamination, but then to address the contamination, you know, water systems that have to look now to putting in new types of treatment systems that may be incredibly expensive and that may need to be operated for, for long periods of time. So you've got water providers, including in California and in other states all over the U.S., and, and even states that are now pursuing claims against the manufacturers of these chemicals uh, and those that made uh, firefighting foam that contained these chemicals that have been found outside military bases, airports, fire stations, etc., um, um, that have unfortunately made its way into the drinking water. And the, the goal is to try to make sure that the companies that made this stuff, that actually made it knowing that if we put these chemicals in there, this stuff's going to get out into the environment. It will get into the water. It will get into people's blood. Yet they did it anyway. That those companies 
should be the ones paying these costs going forward, not mm-hmm. the taxpayers, not you and I, the folks that are that are been exposed to this without our knowledge, and not the cities and the municipalities or the states that have these costs forced upon them. Mm-hmm. So what you're seeing all over the country right now is unfortunately litigation having to be brought because as we as we sit here today in the year 2021, despite everything that we now know about how dangerous and toxic these materials can be and the threat that they pose to human health and the environment, we are still waiting for federal enforceable regulatory standards for these things in drinking water. And we still have companies who made these chemicals denying responsibility for their materials, even though (laughs) these are completely man-made chemicals. So when you find them in the water, they're fingerprints right back to those companies. They yeah. don't exist naturally. Um, and, and so, unfortunately, you've got people having to be forced, once again, into court in order to try to make sure that the people that are really responsible for causing all this problem are the ones paying for the cost, not the taxpayers, not the people who were exposed without their knowledge. Right. You know, I, I read an article that actually I, I follow your LinkedIn posts religiously, and there was one of them that talked about um, how back in June of this year, the Wisconsin Assembly passed a bill that would create a new $10 million grant program to help communities clean up contamination from forever chemicals, um, but it would ban them from suing those responsible for the pollution. And I'd love to know what your thoughts are on this piece of public policy, Rob. Well, it's, it's incredibly concerning and disturbing uh, to see that, but unfortunately, not surprising. Um, I, I, again, when you find these chemicals in the water or you're finding them in your soil or your blood, uh, you know, they're, they're fingerprints back to this very small group of companies that made these chemicals and put them out there knowing that, you know, this day would come. Um, so there are some pretty significant potential liabilities and costs out there for those companies. Um, and, you know, it's, it's one of the things we want to make sure doesn't happen is we obviously want to make sure that water providers, states, you know, the exposed people um, have the funds necessary to clean this stuff up and to get it out of the water and to, to do whatever's necessary to protect public health. But we shouldn't be um, forced to have to have the taxpayers um, either, you know, relieve the companies of liability in order to get that money. Right, exactly. And, and you know what? Well, we I- saw... Go right ahead, Rob. Yeah, yep. Go ahead. No, go right ahead. Go right ahead. I was going to say, just recently we saw uh, you know, that there are billions of dollars now that are going to be made available um, through the infrastructure bill um, for addressing PFAS. Now, the only con- concern is you know, that that's taxpayer funded. We want to make sure that we're not bailing out these companies that should be responsible for these costs. And to make sure that that um, you know that 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 the, that the people that actually caused the problem are the ones paying these bills, not not the taxpayers. Well, and and I I wonder whether or not our public, you know, elected officials are up to the task. Um, back in August, Forbes ran an article that was entitled, "If Congress can't clean up public water systems, the trial lawyers will." And I'd love for you to talk to us about the important work that's being done by lawyers like yourself to protect people from forever chemicals. Sure. You know, I I think I first sent my letter to the U.S. EPA alerting them that one of these chemicals, PFOA, was in public drinking water um, in this country. That was March 6th of 2001. 20 years ago, and we are still waiting for the federal government to move forward and actually regulate this chemical in drinking water, despite the fact that we have some of the most comprehensive animal toxicology data, human data, including massive community exposure uh, data 
uh, with independent scientists confirming links with disease between this chemical and drinking water. Yet we are still waiting for that regulatory process to play out. And in the meantime, as people are finding out that these chemicals are in their water or that they're otherwise exposed to them, they're, they're wanting to make sure that they get rid of this stuff. And unfortunately, because our regulatory process moves so slow and is so incredibly cumbersome and complex, and again, something I try to explore more in the book, exposure, um, the people have been forced into court. And to this day, really, the, the only way people have been able to get their water cleaned up and to get relief from exposure to these chemicals over the last 22 years or so has been to go into court, to have to hire lawyers and fight in court to get this stuff done while we wait for the regulatory process to, to, to play out. And as a lawyer, I'll be the first to tell you, I don't think that's what people should have to do. They shouldn't have to go into court and fight about this. So, you know, it's one of the things I've been really encouraged lately is since since the book's release, since the film Dark Waters came out, there has been a really, um, I think, big um, growing awareness of this problem. And we're mm-hmm. starting to see a lot of, um, of, of discussion at the federal level, at the state level, among legislators, among communities, among impacted people, now demanding that steps be taken now to address mm-hmm. these issues. And we, in fact, just saw um, some pretty significant announcements by the U.S. EPA that they will now finally move forward with setting enforceable drinking water standards for at least two of these chemicals, including PFOA, and may potentially take other action to regulate them. The problem being, though, <laughs> it's still going to take another year or so for that to play out, even if everything moves forward at, um, as, as hoped. So it, it's an incredibly long process, and because of that, uh, people have had to be forced into court in the meantime to get relief, and that continues to this day. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of cases now pending uh, on behalf of states, on water providers, individuals, communities, firefighters that have been impacted by these chemicals and uh, their only way to get relief has been to be forced into court. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I want to talk to you about the EPA's recent announcement. Um, I, as far as I know, it was just last month. Uh, Radica Fox, EPA's assistant administrator for water, told the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee we should have had drinking water standards for PFOA and PFOS years ago. Help us understand the impact that the EPA's lack of standards for PFAS and drinking water has had on the U.S., and furthermore, um, why you're encouraged by, you know, what they're doing now. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree with her statement, you know, that this is something that should have happened a long time ago. You know, again, as I mentioned, we alerted the agency to this in 2001, uh, and it's, it's, we've, we're still waiting um, we've had action plans announced by U.S. EPA in 2009, and nothing really happened. We had another action plan announced on PFAS in 2016, and again, nothing really happened. Um, I'm hopeful, opt- cautiously optimistic, that this latest um, announcement by the EPA, that they intend to move forward with these same activities that we've been promised for years, I'm hoping that this will finally happen. And I'm, I, again, I, I'm cautiously optimistic because I think we now have public awareness of the need for this. And I think uh, it's difficult for this just to fade away at this point. Um, and there, there's so much awareness of the problem in so many communities that are impacted um, that it's going to be difficult for folks just to, to, to um, pretend that this isn't happening and watch it fade away. Because that's what happened years ago. When this issue first started to, to rise to the public attention um, in the early 2000s, uh, there was a, an announcement, oh, well, we're going to start phasing out one of these chemicals. Uh, mm-hmm. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna agree to, to pay some small fines and 
and everything just sort of faded away, and the public forgot about this issue for the next 15 years while the exposure continued. So I'm, I'm hoping that with the EPA's um, renewed focus on this issue and now the attention even at the White House level, we saw the president discussing the need to address PFAS. And we've seen now, as I mentioned, you know, pretty significant allocation of funds um, you know, to address these issues, all showing recognition this is a serious public health problem that needs our prompt, immediate attention. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll see it actually happen this time. I hope so, too. I mean, even in my own community, I mean, as soon as I learned that we had this issue, I started showing up at city council meetings because our city is part of our uh, water supplier. And then we also have a, a regional water agency that supplies about 80% of our town's water supply. And I started showing up at meetings. And even still, after all you know that they have put out about this and, and all of the um, talk about it, there are still people in my own community who are like, ah, I don't know if it's really a health risk. <laughs> and so there's still so much public education that needs to be done so that we get the level of public interest to make this something that they vote about, something that they show up to meetings about. And so I appreciate all that you're doing to help make that a reality. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have much more with Rob Balot. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right Right after this. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. If you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. Our guest today is someone that we all owe a great debt of gratitude. Rob Balot is the attorney who actually found that there was a chemical family known as PFAS during a discovery process in a 20-year legal battle that he fought with the company DuPont, um, to protect and defend um, a, a group of West Virginians um, who had been exposed uh, through groundwater and, and, and surface water contamination downstream from a DuPont plant. And this is how we even know and how the EPA even knows that this family of chemicals exists. And so um, his book, Exposure, is readily available. Hop on Amazon and grab it. It's called Exposure, Poisoned Water, Corporate Greed, and One Lawyer's 20-Year Battle Against DuPont. In fact, this story is so important that um, <laughs> they made a movie out of it. There's a documentary called The Devil We Know. You can check that out on YouTube. But Mark Ruffalo, some of you may know him as the Incredible Hulk, uh, actually played Rob and Anne Hathaway played Rob's wife in the movie Dark Waters. And it is an amazing uh, film that I, I highly recommend. You can get it on all your typical streaming uh, services. So check that out. 
You know, Rob, there's a, a group of, of individuals that have been particularly hard hit um, by PFAS exposure. And you recently spoke at the fourth annual Firefighters Health and Wellness Conference in Beaver Creek, Ohio. Talk to us about what firefighters are going through right now as they learn the harmful, harmful effects of PFAS in firefighting gear that they've been using. Yeah, you know, it's, it's really... Uh disturbing story there. You know, here are these folks that we all um, you know, ask to, 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 to take the risk to protect all of us you know, in, 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 in fires and emergency situations, um, yet they have been exposed to these chemicals in ways that nobody really clued them into, nobody really told them, by the way, um, not only are you undertaking uh, these risks, but you've got these chemicals in firefighting foam that you're using or possibly in the gear that you're wearing. And, and let me explain. Um, the, the chemicals that we've been talking about, PFOS, two of the, the ones we mentioned that were the most well-known, C, uh, the C8s, PFOS and PFOA, historically have been used in a certain type of firefighting foam that has been used for petroleum or gasoline-based fires. Uh, so fire, firehouses, fire, firefighters all over the world have been using this stuff uh, since the 60s, 70s um, in battling, you know, it, it fires at airports or a highway crash or you name it. And this stuff has been stored, the foam has been stored in their firehouses or on their trucks or in the airports or in the hangars for years. Um, and they've been told to use it, spraying it out into the environment um, and never really told, by the way, this foam has these dangerous toxic chemicals in them. Um, and unfortunately, the, the firefighter community is only just now really becoming aware of this exposure through the use of these foams. And in, even more recently, through the, the good work of um, uh, firefighter and his wife, uh, the Cotters up in Massachusetts, you know, who have helped raise awareness of the fact that these chemicals also historically have been used in some of the coatings, um, like for waterproofing or stain resistance on their turnout gear, you know, the, the equipment that they wear to battle fires. You know, and some of this equipment is used for many, many years. And there's a concern that that stuff could come off the fabrics or end up in the dust in the firehouses. And there has recently been some great research done um, by uh, Dr. Peasley out of uh, University of Notre Dame, you know, confirming that there's high levels suspected of these chemicals uh, that have been used on these materials in the past and that are being found in the dust in these firehouses. So it really raises serious concerns among the firefighting community because the types of cancers, for example, that have been linked to these chemicals, things like testicular cancer or kidney cancer or prostate cancer, you know, are also the same types of, of cancers that have been significantly elevated in the firefighting community. So there are a number of studies that are being requested you know, to be done to confirm whether these chemicals might be responsible for this, uh, at least in part, to some of this increased cancer among the firefighting community. So it's, it's really a process of making the community aware at this point that this exposure has even happened and trying to help them understand how they can try to minimize this exposure going forward and to get hopefully funding in place to do the studies that are necessary to tell them whether they, they've been exposed and whether they've got a real problem here or not. Um, and so there's, it's a real uh, serious need for education in the firefighting community about these chemicals, um, you know, and real concern about why was this information not shared with them decades ago. Uh, so we're right. trying to do what I can to help provide that information uh, to as many different groups as we can at this point. Well, and, and again, you know, you're, you are relentless in your advocacy for those who are, um, who are impacted by this, this family of chemicals that's so toxic. You know, you alluded to this just uh, like really quickly in the first segment, and I want you to go into more detail about the emerging air emissions and what we know about uh, the air emissions associated with PFAST. What can you tell us about that? 
Yeah, you know, that these chemicals, unfortunately, they don't just end up in the water and move through the water or seep into the groundwater. Uh, they can get up into the air. Um, and we know this um, through modeling and monitoring that's been done outside of manufacturing facilities like the DuPont plant out in West Virginia, um, where, you know, it was shown that this stuff can be released through the smokestacks at the manufacturing plants and can travel great distances. And then it can basically fall down onto the ground where it then can seep through the soil and get into uh, the drinking water, the groundwater, or can be taken up through crops uh, and then uh, animals that graze on those crops. So it, unfortunately, it's been something that's been kind of overlooked to a, to a large degree up until now. A lot of the focus has been on identifying water impacts, drinking water impacts, for obvious reasons. We want to make sure that people aren't drinking this. But regulators and scientists are really starting to focus now on the ability of this stuff to, to move and to travel great distances through the air. And, you know, examples of that we see, we, we find this stuff, we find these chemicals in the polar ice caps on the top of Mount Everest. Oh, um, you know, in, in polar bears. And it's because... Even though we've started to phase out manufacturing of this in the United States of the C8, some of that manufacturing has moved overseas to places like China, where even though it's made far, far away from us, it can get up into the air, travel through the atmosphere in cloud droplets, and fall back down all over the planet. So it's really a global problem. And so we see a lot of activity now at the international level, trying to figure out how do we address this in a really comprehensive global way, given how these chemicals behave and their ability to move all over the planet. You know, it's funny, Rob, just yesterday, I, I sat in on a webinar, it was a, a bunch of California school nutrition officers, you know, people who are, um, you know, in charge of feeding children in school, breakfast, lunch, snacks, and they were talking about PFAS in some of the packaging that they serve food in and and some of the alternatives. And one of the really astute uh, attendees said, how is it even legal um, for these chemicals to be put in our, our food service where when it could kill us? Um, and and I, I said, that's such a perfect question to ask. And so I'm going to ask you, Rob, do you think that forever chemicals should be banned? And, and if so, how likely do you think it is that the U.S. or that the global community will do that. Well, you know, we're, we're starting to see some steps toward that kind of thing now happening, um, not only in the United States, particularly in various states, uh, but at the international level. And, you know, as I mentioned, when the information finally started to come out about C8, the PFOS, PFOA, we saw those chemicals be voluntarily phased out of production in the U.S., although some of the production moved overseas, we saw additional chemicals start to be brought out. You know, instead of C8s, the companies knocked a couple carbons off. They started making C6s, C4s. That stuff's now being made. We're, we're seeing all these chemicals come out and be brought out into the market and being used in all these products. But you have to keep in mind, in most uh, jurisdictions, these things are still not regulated. So they're not necessarily undergoing any kind of review. Um, they're, they're, they're not on warning labels. They're not on ingredient labels. They're incorporated into all of these different materials, including food packaging. So as I think the scientific community and regulators start to, to, to realize that this stuff has been used in food wrappings and containers and packaging and um, that they are now starting to actually adopt laws um, to try to restrict those uses. We've, we've seen that happen in California, for example, where legislation has been passed starting to restrict the types of products where these chemicals can be used. Other states are doing the same thing, particularly with respect to these firefighting foams we were talking about. There are states that are now saying we're not going to allow um, foam with these types of PFAS chemicals to be used anymore. Um, so we're seeing that slowly start to happen. And at the international level, you're seeing um, what some would say are even more um, dramatic steps being taken to try to actually implement 
bans of these types of chemicals going forward. Um, and now what we see happening is people realizing we can't be just focusing on one of these PFAS chemicals at a time. I mean, after all, look at how long it's been taking for us to, to move on PFOA, the chemical that we've been talking about that we first learned about 20 years ago, where there's all this science, all this data, and we're just now getting to the point where the federal government may begin to regulate that. And we can't wait 20 years each time the companies simply knock a carbon off and call it new and we start all over again. So you see people at the regulatory and scientific level saying, we need to find a different way to do this, maybe address them as a class of chemicals, just like dioxins, like PCBs. Um, So I think that's going to be a big debate coming forward in the next several years. You know, I, I'm in one of the communities dealing with this, um, and so it's very, very much a, a real thing for me. But, um, you know, PFAS treatment facilities are being built by water agencies across the country because we can't wait for, you know, the EPA to figure all of this out. We need to get this out of our water. And at least initially, ratepayers are likely to foot the bill. Do you anticipate any financial relief that could reimburse ratepayers for these big capital expenses? And it's not just building the treatment plants, it's operating them. Right. Uh, Absolutely right. And, you know, what we're seeing is because we haven't had this activity yet actually get done at the federal level, states have been moving forward um, like in California, like in, in New Jersey and in New York and in other states that have said, we're going to move forward and start adopting um, our own guidelines or state enforceable standards for these, this stuff in drinking water. And that's been prompting water providers all over the country you know, to, to have to move forward um, and start putting in these filtration systems. And as you mentioned, they're incredibly expensive. It's mm-hmm. not just you know, the cost of building the new facility but it's the cost of of operating it, particularly if these chemicals become regulated as hazardous substances Mm -hmm. or hazardous waste. And there's a lot of discussion about that right now on Capitol Hill. You know, if that happens, the cost to to deal with the waste, you know, the the spent carbon from the water treatment, uh, you know, are going to be incredibly expensive. So that's why um, you, you see these water providers all over the U.S., bringing this litigation and, you know, we're representing water providers, including those in California, you know, that are, that are pursuing those claims against these manufacturers of these chemicals in this foam to make sure that those costs are borne by the people that actually cause the problem, not the ratepayers. So Let me ask you another question, Rob. You have to do that through litigation. Right. And, and this is a question that I have as well. And this is kind of a, a caveat. So if, if we know that these chemicals are this hazardous, besides the manufacturers, are companies that use PFAS or introduce PFAS into the environment also liable? Well, that's, that's one of the things that's going on right now are a lot of these companies that what I would call customers, you know, the people yeah. that may have purchased the, 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 say, a liquid solution from one of these PFAS chemical manufacturers. In a lot of these circumstances, those customers had no idea that the mm-hmm. PFAS was in those materials. Or, you know, so it really is critical uh, to, to understand which companies actually knew what. You know, we, mm-hmm. we know a lot about what the manufacturers were aware of. We know a lot about, for example, what the foam manufacturers were aware of. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, yeah, there are a lot of companies that are further down the chain mm-hmm. um, that may have received products but didn't, didn't disclose that PFAS was in them, you know, when they, they were buying these materials. So it's really important to, to understand, you know, who actually had that information. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, you mentioned, you know, if PFAS and this family of chemicals is, is deemed a hazardous material, and once we have removed it from drinking water and we're building these new treatment plants, you know, what, what is being done with it? What, what should be done with it? How do we ensure that once we remove it from drinking water, it doesn't get reintroduced into the environment? What is a safe disposal method? 
<laughs> well, that's, that's a great question and one that there are a lot of scientists working on right now, as, as you can imagine. Um, you know, there, there's not, unfortunately, a lot of guidance right now from the federal agencies on how to handle um, waste or what to do for cleaning up this material. Um, you know, a lot of folks have been focused on at least getting it out of the drinking water. But then, as you mentioned, you know, that's sort of, well, what do we do the next, with the next step, which is with the waste that are generated? Um, and there's a lot of discussion right now about what is the best way to handle that. Um, you know, is it incineration? Is it putting it in a landfill? Is it doing something else? And that, that right now, um, that's a huge area of scientific debate about what is um, you know, the best method right now. Yeah, and, and I, I can only imagine that's going to be a tough situation. And again, who's going to pay for it um, will be part of the equation exactly. as well. Is there anything happening outside of the U.S. that other countries are doing to deal with PFAS um, that that we could learn lessons from? Is there anything yeah, going on a lot in of foreign activity public? Actually, let's happening talk overseas. about that. You know, again, given given what's going on, I mean, given what the different types of products these chemicals have been used in over the years, as you can imagine, a lot of this stuff is is ending up overseas. A lot of it's being found in drinking water now overseas, particularly impacts from firefighting foams. You know, that stuff wasn't just used in the U.S. It was used worldwide. So we're now seeing um, you know, stories appearing in the headlines almost on a daily basis in Australia, in Japan, in Italy, Germany, um, you know, the U.K. It's, it's all over. And what we're seeing is uh, in some of these cases, you see a little uh, some, uh, in the Netherlands, for example, they, they opened an investigation of emissions outside of a manufacturing facility in Dordrecht. Uh, in Belgium, there was a, a, a major PFAS facility there in Belgium, where once this information finally came out to the public there, that these chemicals were getting out into the environment from the plant in Belgium, uh, the, the governmental authorities there actually just ordered the plant to be shut down. Wow. So it's, um, it, I think it really sh emphasizes and shows how serious, you know, the, the potential health threat here is from these chemicals and, uh, you know, the range of actions that, that can be taken. Yeah. Yeah. You know, many of our listeners are familiar with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And back in March, you spoke at the SDG Global Festival of Action and you shared your personal insights and ideas on building a more just and sustainable society. And I would love to give you a chance to share some of your comments from that event with our listeners. Sure. Well, thank you. And, um, you know, that was a terrific event. Um, you know, and one of the things I really wanted to emphasize then, and again, I, I still think it's incredibly important for, for people to focus on is, you know, the ability to actually um, change things, you know, that, that we do have the ability uh, to, 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 to actually fix this problem. Uh, you know, it sounds pretty overwhelming based on what we've been talking about here today. Mm -hmm. You know, these massive contamination on a worldwide scale, it's in the blood of everybody, it's in our water, you know, it's incredibly expensive, litigation everywhere, but this can be fixed. And I think, if anything, you know, looking at the story that we describe in the book or that you see in the films, uh, it shows that you know, people standing up and speaking out about this and demanding that something be done, even if it's against some of the biggest forces in society, some of the biggest companies, or against the, the current regulatory system or the way in which science is developed or the way in which the laws play out, um, that if people are persistent and determined that this is a problem that needs to be fixed and are willing to take it on and to keep pushing, it can be changed. We're seeing that happen right now with PFAS. Things I thought I would never see happening are happening now. We're seeing legislation being proposed at the federal level to address this problem. You know, the President of the United States discussing it as a problem. Mm -hmm. Billions of dollars being allocated by Congress to address the problem, you know, and states all over adopting rules, adopting new standards, 
community groups all over the world, you know, demanding that things be done. And we're seeing the practical impact of that as companies worldwide are making public announcements now that they are committed to phasing out uh, any further use of these chemicals in their products. Fast food companies, carpet manufacturers, clothing retailers, you know, are all coming out now and saying we're moving away. So it can happen. It might take a long time, but uh, the change can happen. And I think we're, we're seeing it happen. And hopefully with, with events like this, you know, being able to have these discussions and people being aware of what needs to be done and realizing you know, we need to keep talking about this and insisting it be done. We can't just assume somebody else is going to take care of that. You know, there's somebody yep. out there that's, that's handling all this for us. We have to insist that it be done. And we have to insist that the people who cause the problem are the ones that are held responsible. Well, and I think that people like you who keep their shoulder to the wheel for all these decades um, are the people that we have to thank and that we need to join you and all put our shoulders to the wheel. You've kept this um, in the forefront and, and you've been such a champion and, and I can't thank you enough. You know, many of our younger listeners get their news from John Oliver's show this week tonight until they hear about it there that they haven't heard about it. Um, I'd mm-hmm. love to know what your thoughts were when you saw his show on PFAS. <laughs> uh, I, th- I thought that was terrific that he was able to highlight this story and as you indicated bring it to an audience that may not otherwise want to read about this I mean, the, you know, we're talking about a problem that has lots of big complicated chemical names a lot of science a lot of legal stuff not the, not the most um, you know exciting sounding topic so you know for him to be able to present it in the format that he did um, you know, and be able to reach additional people who might not otherwise have been aware of this issue. I think that was tremendous. And you know, I think they did a great job in helping to highlight this issue to a segment of the public that probably wasn't, wasn't terribly aware of what was happening here. Um, you know, it was in, uh, not just the John Oliver show, but we also saw that with um, 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 the Daily Show ran a segment mm-hmm. a little earlier as well. And I think they reran it right after the Oliver show. So it's important, you know, to be able to find effective ways to bring this public health threat information out to the public in ways in which they can identify as to why it's important to them. Well, and and Rob, I just, I want to thank you so much for what you've done and uh, the work that you did to put together your book, Exposure. I really want our listeners to get out there, get a hold of that book. You will be riveted. And, and if you just can't uh, bring yourself to read, it's also available in audiobooks. Uh, you can watch the movie Dark Waters. There's so many ways to get a hold of this information. It's one of the most riveting stories um, and important uh, and to Mark all Ruffalo of our health. reads the first chapter. that's oh that's so cool well rob thank you for joining us thank you to all of our listeners for joining us we're going to be here same time same place next week with Margot green radio until then have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.